the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for Hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt, live inside the Beltway. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving weekend. I would ordinarily, every other year, I would spend the first segment moaning about the loss of the Buckeyes to our rival and the loss of the Browns to our nemesis, but I'm not going to. I'll simply quote Sir Andrew Barton, fight on, my men. I am hurt, but I am not slain. Lay me down and bleed a while, and I'll rise to fight again. We'll get them next year. I, I'm really not as obsessed with ball as I normally am because of the ongoing crisis in Israel and the war that could engulf the entire region, if not more, at a moment's notice. And I, uh, I'm following so closely every day as watching the game, checking on Hamas was screwing around with the hostages on Saturday. The second release, the third release, came off fairly closely according to schedule yesterday, and the fourth release is expected today. And there are discussions between Israel and Hamas and Prime Minister Netanyahu relayed this to President Biden last night, that Israel is willing to extend the pause in fighting every day that another 10 hostages are released. I believe that a total of 38 Israelis have been released and an extra number of Thais, Filipinos and Russian. A Russian guy got released yesterday and an Irish girl got released. But Israelis, not dual citizen Israelis, but Israeli Israelis, They have to come out at 12 a day minimum or the pause is over. And uh, Hamas danced on the edge of a razor Saturday because Israel was prepared to resume the war and its catastrophic consequences for everyone in Gaza who is innocent, however that number might be, and continue to kill Hamas terrorists and close the net around Sinwar and his butchers. But Qatar got there and Egypt got there and they slapped him around a little bit and said, are you are you morons? Look at Gaza. Look what you've done. Take the pause. Release the hostages. And they have not really lived up to the deal, but it is close enough for the Israeli government and the people of Israel. And apparently now I put this on my Twitter feed, so it might sound familiar to you. Fanatical religious zealotry doesn't necessarily mean. Utter stupidity. But Hamas leadership would lead you to conclude that it does. Hamas came close to triggering the renewal of this devastating Israeli offensive on Saturday. And any breach of the hostage agreement will do so again today and tomorrow. That would be today. And in the days beyond during which Hamas can extend the pause in exchange for ongoing release of hostages. Hamas wholly misjudged Israel when it launched the massacre. And again on Saturday, as well as their allies in Hezbollah and Iran, Hamas had no idea. They thought Hezbollah would come in and Iran would back him. No. Hamas is now quite obviously losing, and coherence in its decision-making has slipped away. So being optimistic about there being serious 
and careful is just not really grounded in reality. Their best strategy among many bad ones would be to reliably deliver on the terms of the current agreement. And at day five or six, propose a comprehensive ceasefire in place of a truce, one that allows the terrorists to be escape the desperate trap they've created for themselves and led themselves and all of Gaza into. So it's very difficult to do a retrograde operation. They are caught in a closing newt. It has been devastating to Hamas. It has been devastating to Gaza. And the IDF will not stop and the government will not stop. The only possible way that they survive is to escape to Iran, probably. And the only way to get to Iran, Sinwar and the remaining Hamas fighters, killers, warriors, whatever you want to call them, the propagandists call them warriors, Israel calls them gunmen, I just call them terrorists. No matter what you call them, the only way for them to get out is to get to Iran via a deal, and the deal would have to be, Israel would hold up its end. It is a a state with integrity, and if they agreed, okay, all, I think it remains at 198 or something like that, 192 hostages of all variety, release them all. Or And where's baby Kavir? We haven't seen baby Kavir. Release them all. Tell us where everyone is. And if you can't, we won't let you go. And if you can't deliver everyone 10 a day, we're going to resume fighting. And I believe the people of Israel would support that. If you did not notice in the news last night, two terrible stories, uh, two important stories. One is terrible. Important story, the USS Mason, which is an Arleigh Burke-class destroyer, intercepted a oil tanker that had been seized by Houthi terrorists. The crew had locked themselves in the safe room, put out a distress call, and the United States Navy came to the aid of the of the of the tanker. And the Houthis tried to flee, but they got caught by the uh, American Navy and their prisoners now. And I hope they go to Gitmo. We should find out where their orders came from. Begin to put together a map of how Houthis. Maybe we want to rethink demanding that the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia stop the war with Houthis because they're just an arm of Iran. Maybe everyone understands that now. The terrible story came out of Vermont. Three Palestinian college students were shot by an unknown assailant, white guy, in Burlington, Vermont. I hope they catch him. I hope they put him on jail. I hope they put him on jail for attempted murder. Uh, two of them are lightly wounded. One was seriously wounded. And it's clearly a, you know, they always don't say, oh, it's a hate crime. Yes, it is a hate crime. It's like the, the hate crime that occurred in the New York high school where kids put, a teacher in fear of her life because she went to a pro-Israel demonstration and rioted all day long. They all should be expelled. But this is attempted murder. That's different from that. Assault is a lower, a lesser included felony to attempted murder in Vermont. And I hope they catch these people. But it, if you give in to that kind of rage, if you're unbalanced by this, turn yourself in before you do anything stupid uh, like that. The Palestinians should be treated with great respect. That It reminds me of the stabbing of the six-year-old Palestinian boy by the nutter up in Chicago and the wounding of his mother. There are nutters who will be pushed over the edge by this. Tur- turn yourself into your family and friends if you're feeling that. When we left the broadcast on Monday, the cabinet okayed the release of the 50 Israeli hostages. I was on Brett Baer on Friday night and talked about that and pointed out 35 of 38 members of the cabinet approved this deal. And I want you to understand, it's not for Americans to second-guess this. It's not our crisis yet. It's up for Israel to do whatever Israel wants to do, and the cabinet is broad-based. The war cabinet is 
Prime Minister Netanyahu, De- Defense Minister Gallant, and Minister at Large Benny Gantz. I trust those three and their observers. And the cabinet voted for that. The big cabinet said they're doing a good job. So the deal is okay from Israel's perspective. So it's okay from mine. Abigail Adan was released. She's the, the little orphan, orphaned by Hamas butchers. And Israel is being buffalo. They're not being buffalo. They're being told by Hamas. They know it's a lie that they can't locate hostages. And Qatar said, you got to locate those hostages or this deal is over. Tens of thousands of people marched in London yesterday against hate. And that's a very good thing. Netanyahu went to Gaza yesterday. That's a very good thing. Um, There is a great essay by David Horowitz, which I may get to later in the show. It's available at Times of Israel, and I put it on my Twitter feed. David Horowitz is the editor of the Times of Israel. And it's it's a fabulous piece on the difficulty of dealing with, as he puts it, amoral savage terrorist regime that has slaughtered over a thousand of your people, abducted over 200 to its underground hell, and is trying to destroy your country. He's right. Uh, Michael Oren has a great piece as well, Israel's Choice, Body or Soul. And he comes to the same conclusion I had stumbled my way to, which is the best way to get out of this situation is with Hamas releasing all the hostages and being allowed to escape, but only to Iran. They did this once before. I'm reading that fabulous book recommended to me by Dan Senor last week, Dan Senor, that on Israel, a nation reborn, and how terrible deals can come back to haunt you. We, they allowed Arafat to escape once. Jordan did. He went to Lebanon, destroyed that country. So if we allow Sinwar to escape to anywhere but Iran, he'll destroy that country wherever he goes. And Hamas poison spreads because they are fanatical religious zealots with no moral, they're just killer. It's a death cult. But probably the leaders of the death cult want to live because they're cowards in the end. They are cowards. Sinwar's hiding, not leading from the front. If you saw Napoleon this weekend, he did lead from the front occasionally, as did Wellington, as did George Washington. When they, You know, real courageous leaders, not Sinwar. He's hiding in the tunnel. And all of Hamas leadership, though they lead a death cult, will want to live in the end. If you give them the opportunity, they might leave. They might leave and turn over all the hostages. Meanwhile, in that school I mentioned, New York City Mayor Eric Adams blasted the students for their vile show of anti-Semitism. But he's going to send counselors. I, you know, that's that's not going to work. Counselors are not going to work with anti-Semitism. Expel them. Consequences for people who indulge in hate. Whether it's the gunman who shot the three Palestinian kids in Vermont or the haters in New York or the haters anywhere doing the anti-Semitic acts, thousands of them in the United States. Get them punished. I'll be right back. America, stay tuned. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Coming up this hour, Admiral James Stavridis joins us. Very, very timely for Admiral Stav to come along as a destroyer. He's an ex-destroyer captain and a destroyer man. One of them intercepted the Houthi terrorists that had seized an oiler yesterday. And I'll talk to Stav about what went on there. I'm also following developments in Israel. I will update you after this. I want to begin by asking you, though, to remember Prison Tree, Prison Fellowship, Angel Tree, not Prison Tree, Angel Tree is run by Prison Fellowship, and it's a fabulous, fabulous way to remember uh, the gospel yesterday. The gospel yesterday was, visit me in prison. And say, Lord, when did I visit you in prison? And the answer is, whenever you visit anyone in prison, you visit me. 
Well, whenever you help the child of a prisoner, you are dealing with that very injunction. You're taking care of, you're thinking of, you're, you're helping people who are in prison, rightly or wrongly. And it's mostly rightly, right? We're not, I'm not saying people are in jail wrongly. I'm saying that those who are in jail are doing their time, but that should not be visited on their children. And easing that is what Angel Tree does. Helps break the cycle of crime, helps break the cycle of poverty, helps connect a mom or a dad or both parents with a child who is at home without their one or both parents by $25 per child. That's all it takes to get a present, a Bible, a letter from mom or dad about the gift they are sending, and a connection with Angel Tree. Uh, Listen to Martha Ackerman, who's been doing Angel Tree for a long, long time. A family offered us to sit down with them and have a meal with our kids and just them hosting us. They were so grateful for us to be there. And I think it's really beautiful for our children to see what it's like to be the hands and feet of Jesus. That is very consistent with the message yesterday from whatever pulpit you were near, if they were preaching from the same lectionary. I will tell you right now, it is a fabulous, fabulous low overhead operation run by the legatees of the great evangelical witness, Charles Colson. He set up prison fellowship years ago. Angel Tree followed. It's on the porches of many, many thousands of churches. But if you didn't see it and can't give it your church, go to uh, 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 the banner at the top of HughHewitt.com, or you can call 888-206-2764. 888 $100 serves four children, $1,000, 40 kids. You'll get the math, right? $25 a kid. Now I want to turn to the latest out of Israel. There is a problem with this. This is the fourth day. There are 180, I want to make sure I get this right. There are 183 hostages believed to still remain in the hands of the monsters. 183, including 18 children eight girls, and ten boys. Those ten boys would include baby Kavir, about whom nothing has been said. Very, very worrisome. So if they keep going for two more days, all of the children should come out, maybe three days. But Israel is announcing at this hour that there are trouble. There is trouble with the list that has been provided by Hamas, unspecified. Israel said Monday it had received the names of the fourth and final group of Israelis, released under a deal to be a free to free women and child hostages from the Hamas terrorist group and was holding discussions and evaluating the names, indicating that there could be problems with the scheduled release because it's supposed to be children and their moms. And Hamas screwed around on the first day. They screwed around on the second day. And Israel said, OK, we're going back on the offensive tonight at midnight. If you haven't lived up to the terms of the deal and Hamas got their heads straight because they're going to get killed. If they don't live up to this deal, their only way out, their only way out is to keep the pause going for a couple of days and then make an offer of all the hostages in exchange for safe passage to Iran. Otherwise, the uh, leaders of the death cult are going to be dead. And they know that. And Gaza is going to be destroyed beyond. It's already destroyed beyond recognition. But it will get worse for the two million Gazans because Israel will not stop until Hamas is destroyed or put to rout and their people are back. And there's only one way for Hamas to get that done. And the Qataris may be, may be telling them that right now. And the Egyptians, uh, here's a boat to Iran. We'll let you get there. Uh, here's a plane to Iran. We'll let you fly there. We won't shoot it down. And 
get the hostages out. Israel uh, will abide by its word. The international community will assure that. But you've got to sign the deal. And there's no confidence in such a deal unless they live up to the one they've already agreed to. There is a fabulous essay by David Horowitz in the Times of Israel that begins the trouble with trying to do deals with an amoral, savage terrorist regime that has just slaughtered over a thousand of your people, abducted over 200 to its underground hell, and is trying to destroy your country as well, precisely that you are dealing with an amoral, savage terrorist regime that just slaughtered over a thousand of your people, abducted over 200 to its underground hell, and is trying to destroy your country. Israel's political leaders gradually internalized that doing everything possible to achieve the return of as many of those hostages as possible was the most urgent priority of its fight back against Hamas after October 7. They realized there could be no victory, no matter how successful the IDF assault on Hamas, without the return of all the hostages, or at least without the government being recognized by the people of Israel as having done everything in its power to get all the hostages back. Otherwise, even the demolition of Hamas and the deterring of Israel's other enemies would not be sufficient to restore public faith in political and military leadership of Israel that so failed them on October 7th by ignoring Hamas' open preparation for its monstrous assault on its people. But as expected, Horowitz continues, Hamas is exploiting Israel's love of life to extract every possible advantage from its current four-day lull in the IDF war on its Gaza killing machine. The first day scheduled release of hostages on Thursday didn't happen at all. Postponed to Friday, it only went ahead amid further delays. Saturday's phase two was an exercise in orchestrated psychological terror. And immediately, when the Red Cross said it hadn't, the issue of spurious accusations against Israel for not supplying as much fuel and humanitarian aid as promised, toying not just with Israel, and especially with the families of those who had been told to expect their loved ones' release, Hamas also made fools of the Qatari and Egyptian interlocutors, even compelled the leader of the free world to get directly involved with U.S. President Joe Biden working the phones to get the process back on track, with Israel reportedly threatening to resume the ground offensive if the hostages were not in Israeli hands by midnight, Hamas deigned to go through with Saturday's phase while breaching a reported commitment not to release children without their own hostage mothers. As of this writing, there's no knowing how Sunday's phase three of the releases will play out. It played out with a breach, or if at all. As IDF spokesman Daniel Hagari said on Saturday night, nothing is final until it actually happens, or to quote Biden on Friday, I don't trust Hamas to do anything right. I only trust Hamas to respond to pressure. Now, Horowitz relays that between four and 5,000 of the gunmen of Hamas have been killed. That leaves another twenty to 25,000 to be killed, unless they want to get out. And I, I keep hoping that the leadership of the death cult wants to live. Because the only way, as Dr. Warren said last hour, to get out of this, the only way out, without the destruction of what remains of Gaza, many innocent Gazans, the death of the hostages, is for the Hamas leadership to realize they have two choices, die or get on a plane to Iran with as many of their gunmen as they want to take or can be arranged in exchange for the imminent release of all the immediate, not imminent, the immediate release of the 183. I can't remember what the latest report is. I want to get it right, and it's right here. 183 hostages are believed to remain held by Hamas and other terror groups. 
including 18 children, eight girls and 10 boys and 43 women. So 18 and 43 is 61. So that would be five more days of the pause beyond today, provided they live up to it. And I have to believe that Israel would pause as long as it took for all the hostages to get home, provided that Hamas does not screw around with the deal, because they're going to go back to war the moment they do. They've made that very clear. They are geared up and ready to go. And they probably know much more about Hamas now. And they have had the opportunity to study and pause, and they've had the, uh, I, I remember the European campaign in 1944 when Patton outran his gasoline, and Ike had a chance to study the whole war, and he proceeded on the broad front. Choice, not to rush to Berlin, not to try and take Vienna. A choice, a strategic choice that proved well in the long term. And the IDF is pretty smart, like the American Special Force. You give them enough time to figure it out, they'll figure it out. And they're figuring out right now what to do next. So the pause is deadly to Hamas, as, and it's good for the civilians. But Israel will, will pick up the war again the moment that Hamas screws around with the deals that have already been struck. Because you can't trust these butchers. You can't. Only performance of the agreement survives. I'll be right back, America. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back, America. Dr. Michael Oren, former ambassador to the United States from Israel, former deputy minister in Israeli government, joins us. Good morning, Michael. I do not know where you find the time to campaign for United Hatzala, which is IsraelRescue.org, IsraelRescue.org, and write as astonishingly good an essay as you did for the Times of Israel this morning. You're busy. You're a busy man. Where are you? I'm actually at my mother's house. (laughs) It's a pit stop for Thanksgiving. I'm, I'm traveling to... Houston and Philadelphia and Denver this week, and that that'll be that wrap it up, and then back to the war. But um, it's been extraordinary. It's been extraordinary going across the country, about you know, 12, 13 cities, uh, meeting with communities across the United States, hearing their their deep, deep concerns about hatred in this country, um, seeing fear in the eye of, of students at, at Cornell and Columbia. Um, it's it's a historic moment. It's an historic inflection point, and everything hangs at the balance here. I, I agree with you. You know, I've actually, you know, I watch football to divert myself, but I've done nothing on Twitter except post who's on the show and about the hostage crisis and Israel's war of survival, because I actually think there isn't any other story, Dr. Warren. Well, it's a story. It's not our story. It's a story of civilization. Yes. This is not a war between Israel and Hamas. This is, this, is a sto- this is a story between between civilization and something very dark, between, between goodness and evil. And, and that evil is out there, and say, even in the form of, of anti-Semitism, I've come to a very stark conclusion over the course of the last month, Hugh, and that is that in many ways the Holocaust never ended, and that the that the the mindset that created the Holocaust that that Jews are not just hated but they're they're dehumanized, and um, that a, a genocide against the Jewish people can be turned to Jews are guilty of genocide, and it's it's that world that enables you know the massacre of millions of people. And um, and it's very frightening. And we and this is why we have to stay strong. This is why we have to face a, a decision. I think that no government in history has ever had to face. Uh, maybe the British government, World War Two, and they discovered, you know, they, they uncracked the enigma uh, German codes and they couldn't let on that they knew that the codes had broken. So they let the German U-boats attack certain convoys. I mean, I can't think of any more difficult decision. Then, uh, then this government has to make, you know, and that was what the article's about, you know, the difficult decision between defending our country and defending our people. And, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Warren, I, 
I never read Sophie's Choice, and I never saw the movie because I couldn't bear it. It, it is too right. uh, haunting. And you open your column today by talking about the disagreement between your son and your daughter. And it must be the conversation that everyone in Israel and actually the civilized world is having, right? Uh, what do we do? And I came to the same conclusion in a, in a, in a Twitter post. We got to hope that the death cult isn't really its leaders at least want to live and make a deal to escape to Iran in exchange for everyone and leaving. Isn't that the best result? That would be the best result. I don't know. I can't guarantee there would be a result, but we have to keep the pressure up. We cannot let the world stop us. And, uh, and I, I hope our leaders will have that backbone and keep pressing on, uh, even though there's rising pressures within Israel to, to have a ceasefire. All these families whose loved ones weren't released, think about them, 100,000 people protesting for a, a ceasefire within Israel the other day. So it's, it, 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 this, the, the pressure mounts both outside, inside. Just for your listeners who didn't know and didn't read the article, it's in the Times of Israel today, uh, my daughter said to me, you know, if, if, if the country doesn't return, forget the war, the country has to just return the hostages. Because if you don't return the hostages and prove once again that if our children uh, go into the army and fall prisoner, God forbid, the state won't, if the state doesn't do everything to return them, then I won't be able to send my own children to the army. And my son's reply was, if we don't destroy Hamas, we won't have a state with an army for you to send your kids to. And, uh, and that's the argument right there in a nutshell. Dr. Oren, I have been reading a book that Dan Senor recommended to me. I'm almost done listening to it, actually. It's called Israel, a Nation Reborn by Daniel Oren. I don't know if it's any relation to you. And I thought no, I knew a lot about Israel, but I, I don't know anything yeah. about it. The number of times that Israel's been gone through the furnace, 67, 73, the Intifada is Lebanon War. This is the worst, actually. I think other than the War of Independence in 48, this is the worst. because Oh, it's by far the worst. Explain that to me. By far the worst. Because, you know, in 67, 73, 82, 56, okay, these are our wars. Um, These wars were fought by mostly by men in uniforms with planes and tanks uh, far away from our cities, uh, up on the mountains in the the desert um, and against armies. And this is not against an army. It's against a terrorist, uh, a terrorist uh, horde that is hiding underground in, in 300 miles of, t- of tunnels. It's, it's something, it's so sinister, so titanic, satanic, that have, that have had, you know, over 240 uh, hostages. And this has taken place in our towns, in our communities, in our streets. And with a butchery, a savagery that was unimaginable, unimaginable even by Holocaust standards, keep in mind. You know, the Germans were very industrialized about this. They, they gassed people, they shot people. They didn't necessarily, you know, rip their breasts and arms and, and toes off and rape them multiple times and then photograph it for joy. Uh, it's, a, it's a level of bestiality that we can't, we can't contemplate. There literally is. A, the Nazis were a certain way, understood that what they were doing was wrong, so they wouldn't let anybody film it. Uh, these people were actually broadcasting it. So it, it, is, it is darker, deeper, and it's also existential. Um, because if Israel were to get into a ceasefire, nobody, uh, we have a 250,000 people who are homeless. They can't go back to their homes. Uh, large swaths of Israel become uninhabitable. Um, and I don't know who's going to invest there. I don't know what tourists are going to come there. Um, so everything, everything hangs in the balance. And so I, I want to pick up on that. The what is the impact? In the United States, I'm deeply disturbed by uh, the story in the Post yesterday that includes this quote, we're taking on a lot of water on Israel's behalf, said one senior official in the White House. What utter nonsense, I wrote. Absolute idiocy. But the appeasement of the left is growing inside 
of the Democratic Party, Dr. Warren. I know you're not a partisan. You have lots of friends who are Democrats, lots of friends who are Republicans. Are you worried about this, that the idea that they're taking on water, that it even exists inside the White House? I'm sure they are taking on water. And I think that, uh, you know, right now, so much of the, the security and future of the state of Israel, and I will stress the security of the United States and the civilized world, hinges on the moral clarity of one man. And that man is Joe Biden. And he has moral clarity. He's a, he's a religious man. He believes in God. He knows right from, he knows evil and knows it exists in the world. You know, he is a Democrat. And the Democrats have made some truly massive errors in the Middle East, building up Iran, legitimizing Iran, uh, distancing themselves from, from their allies in the Middle East, including Israel, Saudi Arabia. All that contributed to this war. But right now, only thing that counts is blocking that ceasefire. That, so, that, and if you have one person up there and blocking that ceasefire, I'm sure there's lots of people around him saying, what are you, crazy? You know, Israel and our jobs, we're all going to lose our jobs because of this, right? What's more important? And I haven't seen him give an inch yet, but we have to hope. We have to keep hoping that he will remain strong on this. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, am, I am with you on, I hope the president just looks at people side eyes who, if they're saying back away from Israel, but yeah. obviously they are. Dr. Oren, I want to ask you as well, what is going on inside of Israel? Because I've seen some signs that there is a cohesion that previously did not exist, a unification of a divided state yeah. that previously did not exist. Is that correct? That it, it's, it, it's this horrible irony, Hugh, that it took Hamas to remind us uh, who we are, that we are a nation, we are a state, we are a people. Uh, and that's true for the Jewish people worldwide. Uh, it has reminded us because we were deeply, deeply divided before this. And in certain ways, those divisions brought this on, as you know. Ham, you know Iran, Hamas, they looked at our division and said, here, you know, Israel's vulnerable. We can strike now. Um, so they, they reminded us. And um, I think, you know, I think they went a bridge too far, old Hamas, didn't they? Oh. They didn't expect us to do this. They did not expect us to do this. We lulled them into, into complacency because for, through five wars, we didn't do this. But now we're doing it. And, uh, and they, they will regret it because we cannot stop. We cannot stop. And, so two uh, so questions, even if the word were... two questions. Yes. One is, how is the response to your campaign for rescueisrael.org? Is it just Jews in the diaspora or is it Gentiles as well saying rescueisrael.org is good for me? And do you expect a total realignment of Israeli politics around the defense of the nation going forward? Okay, one for the, there's been tremendous outpouring of generosity for Hatzalah, and I'm deeply grateful to everyone who contributed to you too, Hugh. Uh, most of the contributions do come from Jewish sources, but if you are, are listening to this program and not a member of the Jewish people, please, please contribute. This is if you're a member of civilization, if you're against barbarism, go to rescueisrael.org. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And yes, there'll be a realignment. There'll be a realignment. There's going to be a great uh, reckoning at the end of this, and many of the people you see in politics today will not be there tomorrow. And... Uh, and as you know, if I'm always called to the flag, I'll be called to the flag. How much time do we have, Hugh? I want to show you something. We have three minutes. Okay, so I'm, I'm sitting in, in the house that I grew up in, and uh, and uh, it's early in the morning. Everyone's asleep here. But I just my father uh, passed away almost three years ago. I'm sorry. And uh, he was a great war hero. And he, um, he landed on Normandy Beach. He fought all the way through Europe. He and his brother um, liberated a concentration camp. I, I carry the photographs that they have. They, I carry them in my cell phone to remind me. But I, it, my father was, um, he enjoyed being a veteran and was very proud of his service. And he has a little bit of a war room. And I'm talking to you from inside his war room so I can just show you a few things. Yes. I won't, I won't show you all the, all, all the, uh, the weaponry here because it's quite a bit. <laughs> but I do want to show you this because, you know, 
This is my father's medals from the war. Oh my goodness. Um, that's one bronze star. That's another bronze star. That's oh the, my um, the French, the French Legion of Merit. Um, Did he fight all the way across he, France? Was he with Patton or was he with the other army group? He was with Patton. His Patton, Patton, Patton. He remember seeing Patton one time going up a jeep and taking and urinating in the Rhine because he had promised to pee in the Rhine. Yes, <laughs> but uh, he um, he he uh, was in the in the front line of the Battle of the Bulge and um, actually blew up a German tank with a bazooka. He was very proud of his his time in the Bulge. You see the Ardennes and. Uh, what a and great then, room. Uh, crossed the Rhine River under fire. He cried in the Rhine River under fire and got another medal for that, uh, rowing back and forth. So this is my, I just, I wanted to show you this because it, it basically shows you, you know, why I fight and why we have to fight. Um, I think it also brings equal. home the reality of the IDF in Gaza, where it is a very dangerous situation. And those soldiers, men and women, yeah. are, uh, I lost, I believe the death count KIA in Gaza is 67 or 68. That does not include the slaughtered on 10-7 in the IDF. Yeah, but those young men and women are putting their lives on the line every single day. Right. But, you know, what this room reminds me of is that there is evil in the world and that you can fight evil and that we have to be strong. And that's the message of my, my late father in this room. And do you, is that the resolve of Israel, you think, left, right, center, unpolitical, apolitical, completely political? Oh, no, it's going it, to there's going to be a, it, there'll be there'll be tremendous politically up, political upheaval when this is over. I, I you know, we're, we're united right now. But uh, I think that, uh, you know, the core, the future of the country is going to very much be determined by the political aftermath. Of uh, I just hope they reject the ceasefire, even if the United States abandons them. And I'm more worried about the Democrats than you are, but I hope you're right, Dr. Oren, that Joe Biden is committed and stays committed. Dr. Michael Oren, follow him on X, Dr. Michael Oren. If you want to read this blog at the Times of Israel, you can find the link on my Twitter account, X account, or Dr. Oren. Thank you, Michael. Safe travels and you continue across the states. RescueIsrael.org is the Hadzala, United Hadzala off, uh, offering to contribute in this time of crisis. Okay, Josh, I've got you by phone. I was just talking about, I responded to your tweet by posting the four of my five last columns have been 100% pro-Israel, full-throated in the paper. Are they looking at the whole paper? Yeah, well, you're talking about your columns. And, and look, you can find um, a variety of content in any, in any newspaper. The, the, the story that, that we wrote uh, was about sort of specific, the specific tone of, of the Post's coverage and the comments that Greenblatt had had kind of honed in on is that the post over the weekend uh, described the hostage uh, release of the Israeli hostages and in exchange and, and, and I think referred to um, the children and elderly people kidnapped from their homes as captives. They they called it the exchange of captives, uh, kind of equating the prisoners, the Palestinian prisoners uh, held uh, for committing you know, terrorist acts in, within Israel as the moral equivalent of. Uh, the the activities that the that the people who were the children and women who were who were, who were kidnapped and, and held hostage in Gaza for 50 days and there was sort of a moral equivalent there so that was one criticism that Greenblatt uh, put out there but there were a few other 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 you know stories that were were honed in on both by Robert Satloff who I know you know uh, at the Washington Institute of uh, <clears throat> excuse me at the Washington Institute and, and and the ADL's Greenblatt that have you know been a pattern that, that I think uh, the you know a lot of the critics of the paper have come in on lately. Well, I did. I found the 
Gaza babies being taken care of by Israel while their parents are trapped in Gaza story to be poorly informed. Okay, I agree with that. But when you've got a choice of targets, the New York Times is out there peddling pro-Hamas stuff every day. And and their headlines and their story selection and their picture selection every day offends me. The Post, I think, does its best, both on the opinion side where I work and on the on the news side where everyone else works, to get it right. So I, I just think that they ought to train their guns, uh, proverbial guns, not literal guns, on the New York Times, which is the old gray lady for the rest of the world, not the Post, because everyone's going to stub their toe. Right, Josh? Now, let me ask you about you. Uh, I've been wondering about you. I'm pretty impacted by this, and I'm not Jewish, and I don't have friends in Israel or people at the front. I, I just find it the most important story since 9-11, or Abby Gate at least. And I just don't care about anything else. I don't tweet about anything else. What's it doing to you who's full-time beat, and you're Jewish, and I'm sure you have friends in Israel, and you run Jewish Insider? What's it doing to you personally? Well, look, it, 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 we've talked about this before, Q. I mean, the, the, the murder, the mass murder of uh, the most number of Jews in any day since the Holocaust. I mean, that has had a seismic impact on, on everyone who is Jewish, um, you know, and, and at most most Jews have some connection uh, to, to Israel. They have friends and family there. It's, it, it, it is the Jewish state. Um, so so there, there, there obviously has been a seismic impact among, among, among Jews. But among, I think, you know, this is a, a you know, we, we're, we're world conditioned in this country, Hugh, and as you know, and you've talked about over the years, just the impact of uh, Islamic extremism, terrorism. Um, I, you know, I think I think it's had an impact on a lot a lot of Americans too. I don't, I don't think this is just a a, a Jewish issue. It's, it's the rise of extremism on campuses. You see these anti-Semitic uh, rallies and marches that would be straight out of uh, 1938 Germany in some cases. You see vandalism of synagogues of, of, of Jewish institutions that have come as a result in the aftermath of October 7th. So you know, I, it, it, it's had a major impact. I think anyone anyone who's Jewish cares about Israel. Um, it, it, it's 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 the, the worst terrorist attack um, in my memory, certainly. It is very um, disorienting, and, and I think it's hard to actually do other than divert your attention to anything else. But this this story this morning of the three Palestinians who go to Haverford being shot down in in Burlington, what is in serious condition, too, or not? Will Jewish Insider cover that as well as I think it ought to, just to make sure that you 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 are covering the whole story, including extremists against Palestinians, however small the number of those incidents might be compared to the number of incidents that are anti-Semitic. Yeah, I mean, we cover the news. We cover the news uh, affecting the Middle East, uh, and that, that that's part of the coverage. So, yeah, of course. I mean, it's a horrible, uh, you know, it, it seems like they cap- captured the, the shooter. Uh, so I think. We'll, oh, they did? I didn't. I have not seen that. Yeah, I believe there was an arrest made in, in, in Burlington overnight. So that's that's good news. Uh, that is good heinous, news. Heinous, heinous crime, you know, three Palestinian Americans walking down the street in Burlington. Vermont uh, being shot at. I mean, that, that is intolerable in America. There's been a rise in anti-Semitic hate crimes. There's been a rise in, um, you know, what's called Islamophobic uh, uh, crimes, but a lot, of, a lot of hate crimes against Muslims as well. It's something that is intolerable in this country. And, and I think the, you know, certainly any, anyone of good, good faith needs to condemn any, any kind of violence or any kind of hate crime against any, 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 any individual. Now, Josh, I want to go to what Michael Oren and I both agree is the best possible result of the war which is the, uh, the leaders of the death cult that is Hamas, decide they want to save their own lives and the lives of their terrorist buddies, and they release all the hostages in exchange for a scamper to Iran. And, and that ends the war. What do you think? Is that the best possible result? 
Well, I think that's an unrealistic result. Uh, I think the big, big story here to, to watch in the, in the days and weeks ahead is how much support uh, is the White House and, and congressional Democrats in particular going to give Israel after this pause and after the release of hostages commences. And, you know, we have one more day. There's some haggling going on, apparently, behind the scenes. Uh, that's so one more round of hostages being released. I know you've talked about it, Hugh. Then there's a potential uh, additional few days of, of hostages being released if Hamas agrees to release, I think, at least uh, 10 hostages, and that can give them another another day of pause. But look, Israel is, is, is committed. You, you talked to Michael Oren earlier in the show. I mean, uh, the, there's a widespread commitment among the Israeli public to finish off Hamas, and, and I don't think uh, they're going to go willing. I, 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 I like Michael's optimism that, that there could be some deal struck to evacuate the Hamas leaders uh, to some third, third country, but I just don't think that's been their nature. I think it's going to be a much harder war. I think it's going to take place in the South. And, and I think the big question is, number one, uh, what, what is the political capital that President Biden and, and particularly congressional Democrats are going to give in the coming weeks to restart, restart the you war? You know, Josh, I don't think leadership. I, I want to get your opinion. I don't think Israel in the end will care what American politicians think. I really don't. I, I think they're going to finish off Hamas unless the the miracle occurs of the uh, soft landing for everyone I talked about. But I, if it doesn't, I think they will just finish off Hamas. What do you think? Well, look, I, uh, Israel has to do. I mean, I, I think I, I think American public opinion does matter. The 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 the, 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 the uh, capital or the, the the bandwidth that this White House has given uh, the Israeli government to take out Hamas, up, you know, up until this point uh, has been very valuable because, frankly, the U.S. is 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 is, is, is much more stalwart than a lot of the European. Uh, allies uh, True. Uh, lately, especially. So, look, I, I do think it's important. I think you look at President Biden is is regarded as a real uh, um, leader um, and someone who's really uh, helped out Israel's military effort against Hamas. But the big test is going to come. We've had the ceasefire. We've had some hostages released. There's still over 150 hostages that remain. Uh, so we'll see what happens in the coming days. But 183, there's, there's I believe, is the count. Tunnels and take out the south, probably I think it's 183, but I, I must say the one story the Post got absolutely right is the erosion of support for Israel within the White House staff, and that alarms me. Josh Kroshauer, follow him on X, the site formerly known as Twitter, at Jewish Insider, at J underscore Insider. Stay with me, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Folks, America's colleges and universities today are less concerned with critical thinking than with indoctrination. No wonder that so many young Americans embrace cancel culture, deny free speech to conservatives, and celebrate, actually celebrate terrorism. But I'm happy to report there is a college where students debate ideas openly and honestly, and they pursue truth together with their professors and where America's great heritage of liberty is studied and revered. My favorite college, Hillsdale College. As stated in Hillsdale's founding document in 1844, Hillsdale's original mission was to offer the kind of serious liberal arts education needed to preserve the blessings of civil and religious liberty across the land. And this mission continues to guide Hillsdale College today. You can learn more at Q4Hillsdale.com. That's Q4Hillsdale.com. There you'll find a short video. It's just over a minute long showing how Hillsdale's work, not only on its Michigan and Washington, D.C. campuses, but also across the nation, is effective in defending American liberty. Take some time to watch today at HughForHillsdale.com. That's HughForHillsdale.com. 
faces a red alert for hardworking Americans who are tired of seeing their freedoms and savings threatened by the globalist agenda. Wealth Protection Research is on a mission to find whistleblowers who are exposing the schemes that threaten your financial security. We're talking about real patriotic financial warriors like Jim Rickards and Porter Stansberry. They're not afraid to tell it like it is, exposing how the system is rigged against you. Text IDEAS to 76626 to find out more. With the 2024 election storming our way, your IRA and your 401k appear to be in the crosshairs. That's why we've compiled our three favorite ideas from Freethinkers. Don't wait for a knock on your door telling you it's too late. Get this critical report. Text IDEAS to 76626. The fight for your financial freedom is on. Text IDEAS to 76626 now for your free report. That's IDEAS to 76626. Standard text and data rates may apply. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. I never expected to find Larry David in a book that also includes Erasmus. I never expected to be surprised on every page by people I have never met before, but I am because I've got the soul of civility. And Alexandra Hudson joins us now. Hello, Alexandra. Good morning. Hi, Hugh. Great to be with you. I got to tell you, this is a fabulous book, and I do not know how anyone as young as you and with small children could find the time to research it and write it. I'm, I'm just blown away by the soul of civility. When and how long did it take you to do this? It feels like a miracle. The fact that my book is out in the world and um, being enjoyed by people like you is it feels like a gift of unmerited grace. I'm so thankful. Um, I, this is a product of a lifetime of thought and actively a decade of work. Um, a lot of mornings up at 4.30 before the kids woke up to write and a lot of late nights reading and, and, and thinking. Um, so just really, really grateful. It's a, a long time and it's like my third child, 10-year gestation process. So really, really grateful. Well, I want, I want people to remember The Soul of Civility is the title and Alexandra, new to the book world, you've got to say the title seven times in every interview. So The Soul of Civility, that's Frank Luntz's rule. So I've said The Soul of Civility a lot today because I wanted people to read this. I want to go to my favorite discovery. All right, there are a lot of discoveries in here, and I can list them. I listed all my discoveries. I'd never heard of uh, Dionysus Cato. I had never heard of Giovanni della Casa and Baldessari Castelloni. And I had never heard of John Fletcher Moulton, a 19th century English barrister, mathematician, and judge, observed that there exists a middle ground between the realm of the things we do with unrestricted freedom and those things we do because they are prescribed by law. He called this domain the obedience to the unenforceable. This is where our actions are influenced by a sense of what we view as good, moral, and proper, our unofficial code of duty to our families, friends, and fellow citizens. That's where the real greatness of a civilization lies. Where did you find that? It's really kind of hard to remember every source of everything that is in the book. Um, maybe there's this one lovely book um, from uh, by an Oxford historian called Keith Thomas called In Pursuit of Civility. And it's all of our favorite thinkers from Adam Smith to David Hume to John Locke, but specifically through the, through the lens of their thoughts on civility and social norms. So he's like a, a very uh, illustrious historian and he's like a true scholar and that he, you know, dug through archives and letters for, you know, decades writing this book on uh, on civility in the, and specifically the early modern period. So that, that's a likely candidate. I really love that 
that book in particular. But as you know, I really like to, I wanted this book to represent the human condition. And so I zoomed out at, across history and across culture to help us think more clearly about this most important question of our day, which is how might we flourish across deep difference? How ought we to treat fellow citizens? That's what I tell people. And the Larry David effect, we'll come back to that after the break. But I want people to know that Simon, Anna, Billy, and Elizabeth are here. The culture of being seen. Do you know that three out of four of them have Netflix series? I noticed that in my note-taking. Is that their objective in life is to get a Netflix series, even if they burn everything down around them? It's, cr- it's true. The society of the spectacle that we live in is, is a real thing. I unpack this framework called the Spectacular Society by a French intellectual called Guy Debord. And he says that, and he's writing in the 1970s, and he's saying that we have exchanged the true for the faux. We, we willingly accept the glittering illusion of reality as opposed to reality itself. Um, and he's talking about an increasingly consumerist society. Um, and, and, but he, I, this is before the age of social media, where all these stories, Anna Delvey, Elizabeth Holmes, uh, Simone Lviv, um, the Fire Film Festival, Fire Film Festival guy, Billy McFarland, they all uh, wanted to get by on, um, on appearances alone, without the inner disposition, without, without being, uh, having the real substance of integrity. Um, they, they thought they could get by on, um, on show and appearance, and, and a lot of them used social media to purport to be something they, they actually weren't in reality. So these are modern case studies that I, I weave together to show. Um, it's kind of a cautionary tale. I, I was so convicted by all of all of the reading, all the stories, um, watching all the Netflix series. Some of them have multiple Netflix series. I feel like um, the, the, the Elizabeth Holmes one certainly has several <laughs> different different pop culture uh, pieces dedicated to her. Uh, but it is it is convicting. Uh, how can we as a society be more uh, inclined to care about what is rather than what seems? This is a red alert for hardworking Americans who are tired of seeing their freedoms and savings threatened by the globalist agenda. Wealth Protection Research is on a mission to find whistleblowers who are exposing the schemes that threaten your financial security. We're talking about real patriotic financial warriors like Jim Rickards and Porter Stansberry. They're not afraid to tell it like it is, exposing how the system is rigged against you. Text IDEAS to 76626 to find out more. With the 2024 election Storming our way, your IRA and your 401k appear to be in the crosshairs. That's why we've compiled our three favorite ideas from free thinkers. Don't wait for a knock on your door telling you it's too late. Get this critical report. Text IDEAS to 76626. The fight for your financial freedom is on. Text IDEAS to 76626 now for your free report. That's IDEAS to 76626. Standard text and data rates may apply. That which gets rewarded gets repeated. That's an old slogan in the law. And that which gets rewarded with a Netflix series, even if it's fraud, even if it's illusion, will get repeated. The Larry David effect, I'm going to come back to that after the break, Alexandra. I want to make sure people know I'm talking about this book, The Soul of Civility. Uh, I'll put it on the podcast later today, The Larry David Effect. So you can go get that at the podcast. But go get The Soul of Civility. Alexandra, this book came out when a war broke out. Has it interfered with your marketing and the ability to get to people about the soul of civility? When so Israel, uh, Israel was invaded by Hamas three days before my book came out, and at first, you know, I like the rest of the world was just in awe that that such 
atrocities, such monstrosities, such barbarism could could occur today. On reflection, though, it doesn't surprise. We'll talk about that on the other side of the break. America, the book is the soul of civility. I'm going to continue talking with Alexandra. Thank you for listening. I'll be back tomorrow. Stay tuned to this great station and get the podcast for the full discussion with Alexandra. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the podcast, America, and maybe tomorrow morning show as well. Depends on breaking news from Israel. I am joined by Alexandra Hudson. Her book, The Soul of Civility, heavily thumbed and annotated, is in my hands, and I think you can put it in anybody's hands for Christmas. Alexandra, let's pick up where we left off. Your book came out three days after Israel was invaded and the atrocities occurred. What did that do to your campaign to get the book into people's hands? It had to have been disastrous. It, it was, um, you know, I was in New York recording my audiobook publication week because what better week to record one's audiobook than, the, <laughs> than, the, than when the book comes out? Um, but all of my media was canceled television, radio. Uh, I did a few podcasts in studio, which was, which was fine, but uh, it felt a little bit deflating at first. And then I realized, though, that my book is needed all the more now. My book is in many ways a humanistic manifesto, a manifesto of the profound gift of our humanity, of our dignity, um, when we need, especially as the stakes are high, we're most inclined to dehumanize the other, uh, when we feel like we're under threat, when we feel like it's an existential crisis that, that includes times of war, that includes uh, very polarized elections, like we're, we're, we're entering into right now. And, and so I hope that my readers come away with, a, with a, a, a revived appreciation of the profound gift of being human, which is an antidote to these deeply divided, deeply dehumanizing, barbaric times that, that we live in. And I hope that they come away encouraged that we each have a really important role to play in being part of the solution in our everyday, um, both in, 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 in um, sustaining what I define as a true civilization, but also in sustaining our democracy, our freedom, and our flourishing. It's a wonderful, you know, Arthur Brooks could have written this book, too. I, I mean, it takes so much time to write this book. But I noticed at the end that you have great appreciation for great hearts. I served on the board of Great Hearts for 10 years. I did not know that when we met or when I picked up this book. You didn't mention a thing about Great Hearts. Or that we have this overlap. I don't know how you were connected with Great Hearts, but your appreciation for Great Hearts is shared by me. How did you get connected up with Great Hearts? There is this vibrant intellectual classical revival happening across the country, and I'm thrilled to um, to to play a small part of it. Um, I, I think I got connected through Great Hearts specifically via the classical learning test, which I serve on the board of. It's a classical alternative, great books, great text alternative to um, the ACT and SAT, these standardized tests um, that we're, we're all familiar with. And Great Hearts is a great example of, of how to inculcate cultures of civility um, in educational contexts. It's, it's, they see education, the educational project as, as creating good humans as cultivating our humanity and making us more humane, as ordering our loves, helping us appreciate the need for sacrifice, uh, restraining our ego for the sake of the human social project, which we need to flourish. Now, would you show the Larry David uh, series in Great Hearts? Because I, I, I actually was telling my wife about this when we were driving to church yesterday. I said, you won't believe this book, The Soul of Civility. She's seen me reading it, and I've been telling her, this is great, this is great, this is remarkable. I never knew that, which is very... I'm not saying I'm well-read. I'm pretty well-read. 
all this stuff about Erasmus, and I didn't know about Dionysus Cato. So I'm just kind of learning as I go along. But then the Larry David, I've never watched the show. My boys have said, you've got to watch this. And I just, I don't, and now I have to watch it because of what you wrote. Tell people about the Larry David effect, because it really makes sense. So Larry David is the creator of Seinfeld, and he has his own spinoff show called Curb Your Enthusiasm. And Larry David is everyone's inner ego and inner id. Like we, it's a very cringe-inducing show because yes. you know he is. He calls himself a social assassin. So when he's in a social context, he is that person who will call someone out for for a you know petty social infraction. Everything that we might otherwise you know roll our eyes at, be annoyed at, but let it go, he takes it to the extreme. You know, someone cuts in line at a coffee shop or double parks. So he's the person that will go into the coffee shop and say, "Who is double parked?" You know, get out here. Like, this is society. You don't get to do that. <laughs> like, things that we don't, we wouldn't, you know, everyone of us wouldn't expend the emotional energy for. He's there for it. He, like, lives for those sort of, like, social, um, yeah, that, that, that social friction. And so what's funny about Larry David, I, I, I argue that he is the foremost defender of civilization today, because if we don't want a nanny state or a totalitarian regime micromanaging our everyday interactions and, and causing us um, through the force of law to think of others alongside of ourselves, we should be grateful that people like Larry David are harnessing the power of social shame <laughs> to do it for us. And in the book, right before I get to the Larry David effect, I talk about modern examples in London, in Paris, and in New York City under Michael Bloomberg's mayoralship, uh, where where Politeness, basic courtesy to others, was legislated. It failed. Oh, you, 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 you have the posters reproduced from France, which I've never seen before. And that was another illumination for me. Tell people about the French poster campaign. So the French campaign, the French politeness campaign was one of the more successful ones. Like Larry David, the French also harnessed social shame. And apparently the French, who are not known for being the most courteous and polite Absolutely people, kind not. of internationally you're known as being a little bit rude, um, but apparently the French had 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 enough of their fellow Frenchmen, especially in, in the Parisians. And so the the, the French uh, city council they instituted this poster campaign that was on every subway um, and, and every subway station, analogizing common discourteous actions to different animals, saying, you know. Don't act like this gross sloth who's just like lounging on on a on a subway bench. You know, don't spit on the subway. Um, you know, station. Don't don't do X, Y, Z. And and it was saying, you know, let's be civil down the line. Let's think of others alongside of ourselves. And that that actually worked. That poster campaign. It got people to think, like, yeah, I don't want to be like the beasts. You know, I'm part of civil. I'm part of civilization. And and I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do a little bit better. Um, but so that was one of the more effective uh, autocratic attempts to improve civility. Some of the least effective ones were Michael Bloomberg's politeness campaign in New York City, where you know he 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 apparently decided that New Yorkers had become too impolite for him to tolerate, or and so he instituted all these fines and laws that you could be fined fifty dollars for yelling at your kid's softball game for putting your your feet on the subway bench for you know doing these common for for tweeting or texting in in Broadway or, or at the theater and it, it was an utter failure because people don't like to be micromanaged New Yorkers did not like to be civilized by their local government and it was impossible to enforce that was an utter failure but the point is we should be thankful that Larry David's in the world exist to keep us in line keep us in check um because if we don't and it gets bad enough that we, we are consistently and chronically discourteous enough that autocrats past and present will be tempted to control ourselves for us 
This is a red alert for hardworking Americans who are tired of seeing their freedoms and savings threatened by the globalist agenda. Wealth Protection Research is on a mission to find whistleblowers who are exposing the schemes that threaten your financial security. We're talking about real patriotic financial warriors like Jim Rickards and Porter Stansberry. They're not afraid to tell it like it is, exposing how the system is rigged against you. Text IDEAS to 76626 to find out more. With the 2024 election Storming our way, your IRA and your 401k appear to be in the crosshairs. That's why we've compiled our three favorite ideas from Freethinkers. Don't wait for a knock on your door telling you it's too late. Get this critical report. Text IDEAS to 76626. The fight for your financial freedom is on. Text IDEAS to 76626 now for your free report. That's IDEAS to 76626. Standard text and data rates may apply. Now, it's one of many brilliant insights, but I wonder if you heard from Larry David yet, because I don't know that anyone has ever recognized mind. Uh, what's it called? What's the name of the series? Um, uh, your Enthusiasm? I, yeah, Curb Your Enthusiasm. I just call it the Larry David Show. I've never watched a full episode. I've like, seen like two minutes of it, and my kids want us to watch it. I'm just not a Larry David guy. I like Seinfeld, but now I'm going to have to, and I think it's an original insight. Was it original to you, what the, what the show's genius is? I think I think the show is and, and actually I think I think it is original to me. Um, I actually have a running notepad on my phone of of Larry David vignettes. I hope he reads the book. I hope people give it to him. I hope he brings me on as a consulting writer, because anytime I'm in a social interaction, I see something happen. I'm like, you know, I'm going to let this go. But Larry David wouldn't. And here is how it would play out. I have this like running list of all these like little vignettes. And that's how the show is done. They have a they put you in a context. It's mostly improv. It's not scripted. Right. They put you in a context. They say, OK, here's the premise of the skit. Now, let's see how it plays out. You know, here's your character. And so it would just be so much fun. He's he's absolutely delightful. It's hysterical. It is it is you know, it's a comedy of manners. It, it really is. And, you know, we only we don't appreciate the power and the importance of social norms until they're broken. And that's the power of Curb Your Enthusiasm. It's all a parody of what happens when when social norms are broken and and how society and, and flourishing crumbles as a result. Um, and um, it, it's just a brilliant show. That, that well, I, it's a brilliant that insight. And, and you're going to achieve what my kids have not. Now I'm going to watch Curb Your Enthusiasm as soon as I'm done with Dairy Girls. But let me go and finish by going back in the soul of civility to the essential distinction between politeness and civility, which you explain by virtue of reference to their Latin roots, as well as to the Latin root of respect. I took five years of Latin, so I was very interested in this. Would you explain to people the difference between politeness and civility, which takes a few pages to get, but it's crucial. It's about the internal development, what repetition does for the soul, actually, what manners are intended to introduce you to. We hear this word, we hear these words politeness and, and civility used interchangeably. People either want more of them to revive and heal our public discourse today and they hearken back to this golden age, or they want less of them. They claim that civility and politeness are tools of the patriarchy, of white supremacists, of, of people in positions of power to silence and oppress and keep the powerless powerless. I argue that both these contingents misunderstand what civility and politeness are. Politeness is manners, it's etiquette, it's it's technique, it's behavior, it's external, where civility is internal. It's a disposition of the heart. It's a way of seeing others as our moral equals who are worthy of a bare minimum of respect just by virtue of our shared moral status as members of the human community. And that crucially, sometimes actually respecting others requires being impolite, telling hard truths, engaging in robust 
debate. The Latin roots of these two words support this distinction. And again, we've been making, we've been conflating these two words for a very long time. The very first English dictionary given to us by Samuel Johnson in 1755 defines civility in terms of politeness, politeness in terms of civility. And we've been doing it wrong ever since. (laughs) So, um, but the etymology supports this distinction that the etymology of politeness is polyere, which means to smooth or to polish. And that's what politeness does. It papers over difference, polishes over it, focuses on the outside, the external, as opposed to giving us the tools to grapple with difference head on. The etymology of civility is kivitas, which is the root of all things related to citizen, um, citizenship, the city and civilization itself. And that's what civility is. It's the disposition and the habits of a citizen in the city that, again, crucially sometimes requires breaking rules of propriety and etiquette in order to have a robust debate, in order to flourish across deep difference, in order to confront a regime with injustice. I, I reclaim the whole tradition of civil disobedience within my definition of civility. So unlike, you know, some many claim that civility is this tool of, you know, keeping the powerless powerless. And I argue that instead civility, the basic respect that we are owed and owed to others by virtue of our shared humanity uh, and the duties of citizenship can and can has been and can once again be this essential tool of promoting justice and equality in our world. Do you believe, Alexandra, that repetition of politeness will lead to civility? Because I think that's what the education, if you read Montaigne, essay 26 in the first book, The Education of Children, it's all about disciplining children early so that they learn how to be actually civilized. But it's you can't civilize a child, you can only train a child. But it's important to do that. Do, do you agree with that? That it's, you've got to start with politeness, you can't get there to civility without politeness? I I do agree with that. Um, So at its best, politeness will perfect and enhance the inner disposition of civility, the the rituals, the practices, the behavior of sacrificing self for others for the sake of the, the joint project of living well with others. But too often we are content with mere politeness. We're content with just the gesture, just the behavior, and we insufficiently seek to cultivate and nurture the inner disposition of actually respecting others. And so my argument is let's not settle for just the, 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 the going through the motions and, 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 faux, and faux respect that is focused on j- just empty gestures. Um, and that l- let's instead focus on, on cultivating, especially in children, uh, the inner disposition of civility and said, this is how, what I talk about great hearts, that, that they focus on not just the behavior, but how the behavior cultivates character and that and that 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 the outer actions will ideally flow from an inner character and yet often especially in children practicing the behaviors first can enhance that 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 process of character formation of sacrifice of sacrifice for self i just double checked the index because i wanted to make sure i was clear i I don't think you refer to elizabeth ii or diana princess of wales in the book and so my two questions to close are about that, that I don't think are in the soul of civility, because I like to get an author out of their book for a second. I have often quoted or at least attributed to Elizabeth the saying, the essence of good taste is never to be offended by bad taste. Question number one, hmm. is that about politeness or is that about civility? Hmm, that's a great that's a great question that I think that. um that's helpful to help us remember not to be focused, inordinately focuses on, focused on, on appearances, to actually look to the heart of others. Uh, the book of Samuel in the Hebrew Bible says, man looks at the outward appearance, the Lord looks at the heart. Um, and we can never truly know what 
another person is on the inside. We can only go by what is on, on how people act and, and what people say and do. Um, and ultimately, we can't control others. We can only control ourselves. So I think that that quote is a very stoical idea. And stoicism is, is analog- analogous to my theory of social change in the book that we can't change others. We can't control who's tweeting what, what person's running for president and, and what's happening across the world. But we can control ourselves. And we can make our society better and brighter um, by just um, breathing beauty and life wherever wherever we go. So I, I do like that insight. Well, as I was reading Soul of Civility, we finished watching the first series of episodes of the last season of The Crown. Are you a crown watcher and are you caught up? I'm not a crown watcher and I'm not cut up. I would like to be. I feel like I feel like it would ennoble me. It's just it's just, you know, beautifully, visually, visually beautiful. <laughs> what it will do is remind you of everything you write about in the soul of civility, because there are bad people and good people and there are people being good and bad differences here. Uh, all of us are good and bad at different times, caught up in the drama, which is a drama. It's not it's not nonfiction. It's a dramatization. But it is. It is that tension between civility and politeness. It's ever present in the show. And once you've read The Soul of Civility, it kind of puts glasses on, lenses on how you view people's behavior. So I really want to conclude by saying I am very impressed, Alexandra, and by your stoicism of putting a book out in the middle of a news tidal wave. Push on, because I think it will get picked up. Have our friends at Great Hearts adopted it yet? No, they should. Tell them that they should. <laughs> I will. I, well, I, I just think Larry David and Great Hearts, if you're listening, go get the soul of civility, timeless principles to heal society and ourselves. Alexandra Hudson, good to talk to you this morning. Thank you for joining me. Con- continued success in getting the soul of civility into as many hands and read by as many eyes as possible. Hugh, thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate the conversation. I look forward to seeing you again in D.C. Take care, Alexandra. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.